Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm Mark Yakino, your host. I'm a managing director with Major Lindsay in Africa, the world's leading executive search firm for legal talent and leading legal advisory services firm. I'm here today with a very special guest, Dr. Jessica Payne, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Notre Dame and a director of their Sleep Research Center. Uh, I can tell you that she spoke at our annual meeting in um, November of 2022 and was the most wildly um, popular and, and, and um, enthusiastically endorsed guest when they did the survey following the meeting. So we're delighted to have her. Um, she's gonna talk about one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves and one of the most underlooked things when we talk about performance, which is sleep. So Dr. Jess, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right, well, first, thank you for having me. I think um, this podcast is so important. I'm very glad that you're doing it. Yeah, so I run the Sleep, Stress, and Memory Lab at the University of Notre Dame. Um, I'd say at least 80% of my life is devoted to being a scientist and a professor, a standard academic, but I love to get out of the ivory tower, so to speak, and take what I've learned about the brain, about sleep, and about stress, and about performance into the real world, which is why I get to do a lot of fun corporate-type events, um, which is how I met Mark. And the longer I do that sort of work and the longer I do the little bit of coaching that I do on the side, the more I realize that there's just really a huge paucity of information out there about the importance of things like sleep and why sleep is so important for performance. And I guess because I've been living this cloistered life for so long in the academy, I, I haven't had a lot of experience in corporate America or corporate world more generally. Uh, outside of these events, but over the years, because I've been doing it since 2007, I've begun to get, you know, a pretty good sense of the way things are done. And I think that's probably true in the legal community, probably more than most, which is, you know, this I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality that in order to be good at what I do and deeper down, I think in order to be a, a good human being, a worthwhile human being, I have to expend every single last bit of my human energy. I have to use every last little bit of my human capital at every single moment of the day. And so if I'm going to be truly great at what I do, and if I'm going to have value, then, well, I should do things like curtail my sleep in order to get more work done. I should do things like not prioritize my mental health or my family, my relationships, my social support, all these things we know are so beneficial, in fact, necessary for mental health. And what I'm realizing is everybody has a different breaking point, but everybody does break after a while, whether that's through burnout or uh, a bout of insomnia or severe depression or anxiety, whether that's through a physical manifestation of the stress. I see it all the time. And I just am at the point now where I really think that my work is being more meaningfully received in the quote, real world, because the brain simply isn't built to do that. So and if let's we want just to perform well, we want to do the opposite. Yeah. Let's knock, knock out a myth right away. When okay. you sleep, your brain doesn't go to sleep. It doesn't stop working, does it? 
No. And so that's uh, probably one of the biggest takeaways is if you want to be at your best, you should be really taking care of your sleep because yeah, people have this, this, this idea, this sort of misconception that when you go to sleep, because it looks like people aren't doing anything that, well, the, the brain must just be switched off or at least powered down kind of like a computer. And so I think because people believe that they think they're just wasting time while they're sleeping, right? Time they could be utilizing for work or whatever else. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the brain, we can use neuroimaging techniques. Um, you know, you can use electrodes and animal studies, no matter how we assess it, your brain is wildly active while you're sleeping. And if you look at the regions where it's so active, it's regions that are doing the very things that you need to be able to do well to perform well at work. Like um, the hippocampus is just so important for memory, you know, uh, the amygdala, which is so important for emotion processing, some higher level areas of the medial prefrontal cortex, which is a more recently evolved part of the brain. So the brain is doing all this hard work of cognition for you while you're sleeping. I mean, it may be one of the reasons the, that sleep evolved. So one of the, for those people who, who, whose job it is to assimilate information create theories, legal theories and principles upon which to move forward, recall what they've learned and apply it. What's the benefit of sleep? How does it help them do that better? It does, but can you explain it to the layperson? Because it, it seems pretty critical if you're in the business of retrieving and assimilating and applying information. So, I mean, the whole idea of learning, retrieving and assimilating, that's what your sleeping brain is doing for you. So let me put it this way. The human brain can't very well do two things simultaneously. It can't what we call encode new information, that is acquire or take in new information, new experience, new knowledge, while sim simultaneously consolidating that information. That is committing it to long-term storage so you can actually retrieve it later. And consolidation isn't simply about storage. It's not like you're you know, taking things you've learned and in, like via some vertical stamp kind of imprinting it in your brain. It's not just that. Consolidation also helps you restructure that information so that you can engage in higher level acts of cognition like creativity and insight and synthesis. So that's what the brain is trying to do for you because it can't do both that encoding and that consolidation very well while you're awake. So I think one of the reasons I'm not kidding when I say this may be one of the reasons sleep evolved is because when you're sleeping, your brain is offline. Now it's not shut down but it's offline. And when it's offline, it's able to process and structure and synthesize and generalize and find connections, find hidden you know, patterns and data, all of these different things much, much better than it can when it's online. So you've got two major tasks for the brain, one which is all about new knowledge input and the other which is about consolidation and restructuring. So you can not only remember what you've learned, but use it creatively going forward. And I, I believe that, the, that, that we sleep in part because that's one of the best times to do the latter. So we spend our time awake, bringing new stuff in, our time asleep, restructuring that information and committing it to long-term knowledge. Do know, so, Do we know the origins of sleep? No, so it's wildly debated. So figuring out what sleep does for you is a lot easier than figuring out its function. And by function, that means why it evolved. And the reason for that is you can't create that experiment. You can't, you know, go back in time. You can't, you know, create a new species and, you know, determine whether that species sleeps or not. So 
but that doesn't mean we shouldn't think evolutionarily. I mean, here's this, here's this activity that we spend, you know, about a third of our lives doing, and it's got to be a really good reason why we would expend so much time doing that because otherwise you it's just very hard to imagine you know a, a species devoting that amount of its time well, especially to since it's not just people right right well so that's right so every animal that we've studied to date sleeps right so there's no species that's figured out how to get rid of it and there's no evidence that we're sleeping any less than our ancestors so by just basic biological first principles, sleep has to be doing something absolutely essential, essential and non-negotiable. It's a real biological necessity. Yeah. Otherwise, we would have figured out how to do it less, right? So, so there's I think it's no just evidence that suggests that the cavemen slept less than us or needed less sleep or more sleep. No. Wow. No. 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 So it's just that's so that that tells you if it's that non-negotiable if it's not budging at all in spite of our very best efforts right in spite of all the lawyers out there who really feel like they should be able to survive on three or four hours a night it hasn't worked out for us and so i think it's time that we change the conversation to ah okay so what is it that sleep's doing for us why do we need it so much and instead of treating it like it's dispensable we should start learning how to leverage it and utilize it to our own advantage when it comes to performance and so that's a big piece of what i do so we have a fairly significant body of data now that is um, been collected over the last several years showing the general state of distress of the legal profession mm -hmm. with respect to a couple of things, core mental health issues, depression, anxiety, an increased um, propensity towards substance abuse and alcohol abuse, and Frankly, the needle has moved very, very slowly, even as firms have started to realize that they need to have programs. It hasn't necessarily um, recalibrated the underlying attitudes about what it means to be a high performing lawyer. And I shared some of that with you in our prep work. But can you talk to the to the why sleep and mental health are integrally linked? It's not that sleep cures a mental mental illness, but as someone who struggles with bipolar disease myself, I know when I don't sleep enough, I struggle mm -hmm. to regulate things that are normally regulated by medication and by sleep. And so can you explain mm -hmm. for our listeners kind of the challenge to, to, to mental wellness and, and addressing mental health issues when you are insufficiently slept? Yeah, I mean, so sleep is a cornerstone of mental health. And there are a lot of reasons why that's the case, but they're so intimately linked. Sleep is really a built-in regulation. You know, it's a built-in emotion and stress regulation system. And it's part of what it's doing is it's down-regulating a lot of, you know, excess excitability in the brain. It's down-regulating excess emotionality in the brain. And so while we're still working out the details, one thing that looks like it's happening is that during rapid eye movement sleep, and I should say that you get the vast majority of your deep slow wave sleep in the first half of the night, and then the majority of your rapid eye movement sleep in the second part of the night. And when you're, especially when you're in rapid eye movement sleep, you have a lot of activation in this region that I was referring to before called the amygdala. It's a bilateral structure, it's ancient, and it's responsible for emotions and uh, everything about emotions, emotion perception, emotional learning, but especially negative emotions like fear and anxiety. 
And you have a lot of activity in this brain structure during rapid eye movement sleep. Um, that may very be, well be why we have emotional dreams. Uh, you know, that connection is also still unclear, but I think there's a tie in there. And so you're definitely busy. Your brain is busy processing the emotional events of your life, which is just part of being human, right? During sleep and particularly during rapid eye movement sleep. But at the same time, there's another region of the brain that is more recently evolved, uh, the anterior cingulate and parts of the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the most recently evolved part of, of the brain. That's the part that's still developing in teenagers, you know, up even into the early 20s. So not only is it more recently evolved at a species level, but it's also developmentally the slowest to, to um, develop in each individual human being. And so during rapid eye movement sleep, not only are you seeing all of this intense activation in the negativity emotion generation system in the brain as it's you know probably trying to sort through and process and consolidate all of the emotional aspects of your life but you're doing it while that primitive system is under the regulatory control of a much more recently evolved part of the brain in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex so you are processing information that's emotional while you're sleeping but you're doing it in a way that's regulated so that you don't tip over into an anxiety disorder or even into a, a manic episode. That may be what's going on with you. So there's a very, very tight titration between sleep and emotion regulation that we're still studying. I don't want to give your audience the impression that this is figured out by any means, but the links are already very clear, even though it's early days in the research enterprise. So, so in layman's sleep, terms... Does lack of sleep impair your ability to regulate mm -hmm, exactly. those emotional so you're, things you're trying to process? Well, think and so think about if your two-year-old or three-year-old doesn't get his nap or her nap, what happens? They're dysregulated, right? Crying, slap happy, they're all over the place. Their emotions oh. run the gamut. So you see it very clearly in children, but in adults, you'll, you'll see it too. You see it in different ways, but the emotionality thing is one of the first things that happens. And so you will find yourself either very erratic or you'll find yourself with very low mood or with very late, a lot of agitation. And there are some studies out there that I'm finding extremely interesting right now that suggest that we know there's a link between, you know, let's just take depression and insomnia and it was sleep in general. But most of the time, if you go and you talk to your therapist or psychiatrist, they'll ask you about your sleep and they'll say, are you sleeping too much or too little? Number one right. is if yes. those are the same thing, which they're not. <laughs> okay, they're not. They probably have very different meanings. But the idea there is that it's a symptom. But if you look at the data, it, it is a symptom. I think that's, you know, there's no question about it, but it may also be causal because there are some studies where before, like weeks before somebody has a depressive episode, you'll actually see changes in their sleep architecture. So you'll see an uptick. So changes in, in your sleep patterns and architecture could mm -hmm. precede. Or just insomnia, right. Yeah, for instance, I have insomnia. And, and before it was tended to medically, it was right. very hard to regulate because it was just a constant state of, um, agitation because I wasn't getting any rest. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm not putting this all on rapid eye movement sleep. You really need that deep, slow wave sleep too. But the data, as far as depression are concerned, really do seem to be pointing to rapid eye movement sleep. Because in addition to insomnia, which will often precede a depressive episode or a or a manic episode, you will also sometimes see changes in the sleep architecture. So rapid eye movement sleep, which 
typically comes very late in the night will start to shift. So it comes a little too early um, and or people have too much of it or their eye movements, you know, which REM rapid eye movement sleep is named after their eye movements are more intense. Their eyes are darting around a lot more. So, so when it comes too early, getting, what happens? So that just seems to be a it's it's a prodromal feature of depression is what we think it is. You don't see it as much in in anxiety disorders, although I shouldn't fail to mention that anxiety and depression are so comorbid that there's a whole movement right now in psychology to kind of get away from that nomenclature and just to think about, you know, internalizing disorders more generally, because as things I think still stand, you can have a diagnosis of depression. Two people, you and I could both have a diagnosis and not even have a single overlapping symptom, you know, so it's not very informative when that's happening. So, but I guess for in layman's terms, the takeaway is that the insomnia will sometimes precede a mental health event. Uh, and if it's not insomnia per se, and if you're looking, you'll see changes in sleep architecture that may are almost like warning signs. And it's also the case that then there's symptoms. So it is very embedded on both sides of the cause and effect arrow. Do we know what causes insomnia? So there is there are different kinds of insomnia, but the primary cause of it seems to be stress. So if your body is secreting a lot of stress hormones, those are highly arousing. So cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, which is the brain component of that, you're, you're asking the brain to do something almost impossible, which is to fall asleep when you are essentially in a threat state. So this is where it, again, it helps to think about our ancestors. If you were not sleeping and, you know, think about somebody out on the savanna, there was probably a pretty good reason for that, right? Something was probably trying to get you. (laughs) Exactly. And so it was very much in your best interest to not go to sleep, right? And to, and to be in a highly stressed out state, that was what was going to protect your survival. I think now that we're living in this, you know, chaotic 24 seven high stress environment, you know, our stress systems just have not evolved to cope with this level of chronicity and the, you know, just sort of the constant, constant existential threats, I think, especially that we've been under recently with COVID and, you know, social and political distress, there's just so much going on. And as we become more and more, you know, digital as a species, we're aware of that all the time. And so then you mix in a high stress career, like, you know, the legal profession, and it's, it's, I, you know, that type of stress is eventually going to find a pathway out and insomnia is a big one. So it's interesting to me because I've, um, as I've told you, I have this belief that lawyers are really intellectual and legal professionals. I don't want to limit to lawyers, but legal professionals are really intellectual athletes. And when we look at how we train athletes at a high level, we give them time to recover. We provide them with modalities, you know, we let them soak in a nice bath. They have a trainer, they have days off, they have an off season. But when we look at our intellectual athletes, we don't think they need rest and recovery. So um, I think maybe the profession's a little ill-informed about how you even approach the concept of good sleep habits and how good sleep habits can then um, improve performance. And, and, and there's a couple of things. I just want to, I'm not taking a detour, but I am. I do want to note that in one of your talks, this is relevant. I, I certainly have experienced this, that actually there's a much higher prevalence of sleep apnea mm-hmm. 
than I think we previously thought. And if people don't agree, just go to an airport and they will see women. And you never used to see women going through the, right. the, the TSA line with a, with, a, with a CPAP. But now you see a lot of CPAPs. And so yes. um, I think that, you know, as part of sort of evaluating your, your sleep issues, would you recommend that someone see a sleep doctor or if they have some signs? Because it's not always heavy people that have sleep apnea, right? That's true. That's true. Now, the, the link, the, it's increasing dramatically. So first of all, let me just define it. So an apnea, every time you have an apnea, that's a complete cessation of breathing, which means no oxygen is getting to your brain. And apnea, when it's severe, you can have up to a hundred of these episodes an hour. And what people don't realize is that the brain has to awake, it has to alert, it has to wake up a little bit in order to get a breath, but people aren't aware of those awakenings. And so when you talk to people who have apnea, especially if they don't know it, but you suspect they do, they'll often say that they sleep all the time and they never feel well rested. And to me, that is a that raises the specter of sleep apnea because they're actually not sleeping very much. If you look at their EEG and what their brain's doing, rather than seeing them go through the stages, especially as they get into rapid eye movement sleep, you just see awakening, awakening, awakening and up to a hundred times an hour. So mm-hmm. um, in, in severe cases, which are astonishingly common, and that is that increase in general is due to the obesity epidemic. Because anytime you are carrying extra weight you know, on your neck, um, you are going to be more prone to this. Now, to your point, you're right. There are structural impediments that can cause apnea. I've seen it plenty in perfectly fit people, deviated septum, you know, big tonsils and adenoids, which is really scary in kids, incidentally. So I guess my feeling about this is the second your spouse or significant other, they're, you know, they're snoring, their loud, loud snoring turns into gasping, choking. You can tell that they're kind of failing to breathe and waking up. They won't remember it, but that is a time to make sure they go get a sleep study. I also want to say that I think it's insane that we don't all get a baseline sleep polysomnography study done when we're 25. And this should be done, you know, probably every five or 10 years just to, not just to check for apnea, but because sleep and sleep disorders are such a, um, you know, a litmus test for both physical and mental health problems. And And I mean, I like- and sleep tests can be done easily at home now, right? right? You know, they can, they actually can. So it depends again on sort of your health insurance and it's not as streamlined as it should be yet, but you can certainly request that. And, but if you suspect that you're having really, if you're tired, all right, or if, you, if you're not sleeping and you're aware that you have insomnia, or if there's really anything going on with your energy levels, you should just demand to get a sleep study done. I mean, people have to advocate f- for themselves when it comes to their medical care and no primary care physician is going to turn you down if you ask for that. And then you'll at least, you'll at least know because the data is quite objective. It's very, very easy to tell if somebody has apnea in, in most cases. And I guess the good news about it being associated with weight gain is that because most of us humans tend to lose weight, like in our face and around our necks first, Sometimes it doesn't even take that much weight loss to see an improvement in the um, in the scores. So some so it's of worth checking into are excessive snoring. Yes, obesity, especially around the throat and mm-hmm. uh, airway, and then that's right. I've had people comment. It was interesting when I first um, went on my CPAP. A, a guy I worked with said, "Are you on a CPAP?" And I said, "How did you know?" He said, "Because you don't look yellow anymore." 
your your skin because it looks like it's getting oxygen. Well, there you go. Right. So, I mean, this is oxygen to the brain. It's very important. It's why I am a little mystified we don't talk about it more, especially because now we know, again, it's a correlation. Correlation doesn't imply causation, but there's a very tight correlation between apnea and cardiovascular events. So heart attacks, strokes, um, and this is preventable. And so, you know, if you can't lose the weight or you have a different, you know, some more structural type of apnea, CPAP, you know, again, some people can tolerate it. Some people can't just for people who don't know that's continuous positive airway pressure. So it's blowing your mouth open. Sorry, blowing your mouth open. You literally look like Darth Vader when you're wearing the mask. Yeah, you do. You do. But there's a lot of what I will say is there's a lot of innovation going around in that space. And, you know, probably, you know, you could argue that past a certain age, we should all be on it anyway, just to oxygenate (laughs) our brains. So I'd be surprised if in the next, I don't know, 20 years, somebody doesn't come up with a really kind of not sexy, <laughs> but less less preposterous looking and more comfortable, more tolerable version of these machines. Hopefully I'll live long enough. So I yeah. think that that's one of the things that um, you know, lawyers especially should consider if they're not sleeping is it that's may right. be something beyond just stress. I mean, we know stress has an impact, but we mm-hmm. also know that more people have this this physical condition in many cases, most cases is a physical condition, obstruction, than, than we, we previously thought. And it seems like, you know, for you lawyers and legal professionals out there is when you see your primary care physician for a physical, a lot of times they'll do a baseline EEG. It's not a bad thing to ask for a baseline sleep study. That's right. I think everybody should do it. I honestly think it should be part of our regular health care and it isn't. But think about this. When is the last time your primary care physician asked you how you were sleeping? It just doesn't happen very often. And it should be a standard question because again, it's so tied to our health. But I think even that is part of this cultural, you know, misunderstanding that we still are struggling against about what sleep is and why it's important and what it does for you. So when people don't get enough sleep, and they show up to work. If I've understood the research and certainly several of your talks that I've watched on YouTube and other places, um, it's not a lot different than showing up to work after you've had a few shots at the gin. gin, gin, yeah. gin. Is that right? right? Well, it that, it absolutely is, you know, and that's that's I put that slide up because it hopefully makes an impact on people because it doesn't it, take very long for you to start making mistakes if you're sleep deprived can and it's you, just as hard we don't have a Go slide ahead. but can you share like you know describe the visual of what someone who's sleep deprived and someone who's alcohol impaired look like because they're pretty sure, identical. sure they really are right and so if you just imagine a graph showing the relationship between alcohol intoxication and performance it can be any type of performance you're going to see this whopping negative correlation right this very steep line suggesting that the drunker you get, the worse your performance. And that exact same relationship holds for sleep deprivation. And some studies show that that is even, you know, detectable across a single day. So if you're staying up too late, the the quality of your performance just goes down very, very fast. And then if you look at um, just curtailed sleep over the course of several nights, you, you know, you see a similar relationship. So And I think most people know this, and yet they're taught by society that they shouldn't feel this way, (laughs) which is kind of silly because it's, yes, of course, you're going to be sleepy and more prone to mistakes 
um, when you're sleep deprived. And what those data show is you are quite literally prone to making catastrophic mistakes. So the original study that came out used a driving simulation test for its performance variable. But this applies to physicians, you know, who are performing surgeries. I have a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of my work is, is going on with the healthcare industry right now, just to educate them about this as well. Um, you know, trading mistakes that, ha you know, that happen in the financial sector. It, so there's just so much that goes on in terms of your, of your cognitive performance, because your brain simply is not going to be able to sustain attention or absorb new information or make decisions or do any of the many things that our brains have to do for us on a day-to-day -day I've read a little bit that um, in the medical profession, they're beginning to rethink the whole residency program and this idea of residents being on call for 48 hours. Have you seen that and, and seen if there's any studies on the positive effects of programs that have made those changes? Yeah, there are positive effects. And actually, I was I was at Harvard, you know, medical school um, prior to coming to Notre Dame. And you did see a benefit. The problem, though, is that if the culture doesn't change, and I'm certain this is relevant to lawyers, too, even if you make a policy change like that, unless people are, you know, really willing, people in leadership positions are really willing to lead by example, then, you know, less senior people are less likely to follow. So, it has helped. It could help more if people really believed in it and modeled it, you know, for those residents or for I, less senior people in a law firm. I, I will say that I think that there is a generational battle going on in the profession because okay. there are still a significant amount of lawyers and positions of authority that grew up under this quote adversative system and think that they did it, other people should do it. Yes, it's hazing, and, it's hazing, yeah. And it not only impacts their attitude towards the folks doing work for them or with them, also impacts their failure to engage clients on reasonable expectations. This mm -hmm. idea that we have to provide everything yesterday which I practiced law for 25 years, and sometimes that was the case. But it wasn't every day, all the time, every matter. And, and so, you know, it kind of ties together with some of the some of the generational issues we're seeing around returning to the office versus working remotely. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's going to take sort of a generational paradigm shift um, for there to be a healthier attitude towards sleep. Um, are there any right. studies that correlate attitudes towards sleep to, you know, sort of generations view on sleep? Like, Oh, definitely. And it's not just sleep. It's really everything. In fact, I haven't seen studies targeting sleep as much as I'd like them to. They tend to be part of bigger batteries. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, maybe millennials, certainly the generations coming after them do have an expectation of more quote work-life balance. I mean, I think they've gotten the message. They've watched their parents have heart attacks. They've watched them break down. They have seen the, the misery and, you know, people just not feeling fulfilled at work. They've, they've seen enough of that. Now they've experienced COVID, which was a big wake-up call, I think, for a lot of us to live our lives more healthfully and more aligned with our values. So I do think that there is a generational shift. Um, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out, though. These ideas about working nonstop, you know, you know, sleeping when you're dead, 
wearing your sleep deprivation of a bat as a badge of honor, giving up everything for your job. Those are so deeply embedded in our culture that I think it's going to take several generations to really overwrite that narrative. And I think it's going to take enough brave companies across industries to lead that way. And, and what I believe is that for the real, you know, uh, innovative law firm or, you know, healthcare company or hospital, whatever it is, who decide to lead that way and decide to really, really encourage, if not sort of force, you know, people to take care of themselves, there might be a little pushback at first, but I think those companies are eventually going to have the competitive edge, especially given the expectations of these younger generations. So I, I do think there's a lot of, you know, sort of ground to be gained there for the people who are brave enough to run a company that way. It's just that there aren't huge track records of having done that, especially in the non-tech, um, you know, industries. So again, medicine and law are the two that come to mind most readily, but finance is a, probably a close third in terms so of just how much like messed up everybody it's is. It's going to take a long time to address our chronic sleep deprivation as a society. I think so. And there are other reasons for that as well. I mean, now in the attention economy, um, on all these devices that are emitting blue light, there's a lot working against it. So that's why a big part of what I see my role uh, in this life is doing is really educating people about the brain and how to play to its strengths and get the most out of it rather than you know designing systems that are just designed to fail eventually for people. So can we take on another myth, which is you can just always catch up on your sleep? Yes. Yes. That's a big one. And this one, it, okay. So it depends on how you define making up for lost sleep. Cause it's, it's, it's the case in my view that you can never make up for it in the sense that whatever say memory consolidation benefits or critical emotion regulation benefits or immune system benefits that you were going to get on the day you didn't sleep or sleep well, those are lost forever. And cumulatively, those things start to really wreak havoc on the brain and the body. So in that sense, you can't ever make up for it. However, what you do need to do is combat sleep debt. So a lot of us are carrying around this, you know, sort of cumulative sleep deprivation over the course of, for some of us, decades, really, um, that is really bad for the brain and that, you know, in certain circumstances, that debt's going to get paid back. Hopefully that's not when you're behind the wheel of a car, you know, sort of nodding off when you're at a red light or running off the freeway or whatever. But so we need to chip away at that. And so while I might want to change the corporate world so that people kind of get the rest that they need and their brains actually function at their best, the next best thing is to incorporate strategic napping into your day and to get as much sleep as you can when you can so that you are extinguishing some of that debt over time so that you don't get in trouble. So that's kind of me. I know I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but what I'm saying is ideally you don't have a job where you have to do that. Of course, I know most of us do. So when that happens, that's why it's best to go ahead and sleep in on the weekends. If you've got a teenager, oh, make sure you let them sleep in because their circadian rhythms are much more nocturnal. And we're asking them, you know, to go to sleep at times when they're not going to get good sleep because it's too early and then wake up way too early. So, you know, if you're tired, go ahead and let yourself sleep in on the weekends, embed some naps in your afternoon schedule if you can. My advice now, is usually to keep those. Let's, let's pick ahead. up on napping um, okay. because it's important. And it just so happens I had a conversation about napping today because okay. there's a very well known management consultant in my cute little co working space who will 
be known to be closing his eyes for a few moments in an easy chair. Good. Good and I him. said, um, what are you doing? He said, well, you wouldn't believe what a 20 minute nap does. He needs to come, my- he needs to come on the road with me or I need to go on the road with him. <laughs> and, and, and he said very specifically, 20 minutes, he's, if he sleeps any longer. So tell us about the power nap. The yeah, so nap. the power nap, right. And the, and the, you know, it depends again, there's so much individual variation with this. And it's one of these things I'd encourage people to just try. But if you can, if, if your work environment allows it, sometime in the afternoon, and it's very important that the nap be in the afternoon, just start relaxing for 20 minutes, whether you go out to your car or you can do it in an easy chair under your desk, whatever. Um, and you may or may not fall asleep right away, but the important thing is to keep the nap very brief. So set the alarm for 20 minutes. And the reason for that is because if you're extremely sleep deprived and you're carrying around a lot of the sleep debt, that gets expressed as slow wave activity. That's that deep, slow wave sleep that you get in the first part of the night. And that type of sleep, the brain is locked in. And if you wake out of it, or if you've had a nap that consists of a lot of it, you'll just feel groggy. You'll feel terrible. So it's the worst thing you'd want to do for your performance. So keeping the nap short, very important, especially in the beginning when you're very sleep deprived. Over time, you may figure out you can sleep a little more, a little less. So the benefits uh, of really taking those little naps, though, is what? Um, is well, like- you get a huge cognitive benefit. Yeah. So it, the, I think the reason he's doing that is because he's able to re-energize for the rest of the day. His cognitive facilities are working on all cylinders again, or at least most of them. It's really a refresher. And we're still trying to figure out neurobiologically why that works. Um, but it may clean the cash in some way. You're sort of, you know, wiping out um, the first half of the day, clearing out parts of the brain that need to be kind of ready for the next part of the day. We're still trying to figure that piece of it out. But yes, yeah, so that's the danger of going past that is you will wake up groggy. And that's not why you're napping, right? You're napping in the middle of the day so that you can actually feel good and get the rest of your work done and, you know, feel happy and alert while you're doing it. Um, but when it comes to combating true sleep debt, and I know a lot of attorneys go through this when they're prepping cases, they're just not sleeping hardly at all, then that is on your days off, then you want to try to find 90 minutes in the afternoon. So for me, it's either it's 20 or less or about 90, because 90 minutes is how long it takes you to get through a full ultradian or REM cycle. And, and if you build some of that in on a regular basis, when I work with people on this, they're often pretty surprised at how much it, it revolutionizes their, their performance. What are the benefits of a consistent bedtime? It's ideal. The brain loves routine. It just does. And the other thing that it helps with is it regulates your circadian rhythm. And even as sleep researchers, we don't talk enough about the circadian rhythm, but clearly they go hand in hand, right? So we are a nocturnal species. We are, I'm sorry, we're a diurnal species. We are designed to get tired when the you know sun goes down and it gets dark out. And really those cues are extremely important for regulating melatonin and this entire circadian system that helps get us to sleep. It's, then there's the sleep system itself, but they work very closely together to help us go to sleep you know, at night and wake up in the morning, which is why shift work is so difficult for people. And it has some you know, deleterious health consequences too. Yeah, there's so a lot of studies that, on night workers, right? They're yeah, they're pretty yeah, they're pretty. Da- I mean, and it's not surprising because you're not going to get the quality. I mean, we talk a lot about quantity, but you're not going to get the quality of sleep, even if you're really tired, if you're sleeping during the day, because that's not you know that's not our species. So the 
the idea there is if, especially if you're sensitive to this, which frankly, a lot of people with mental health issues are, they tend to be very sensitive to light, very sensitive to say jet lag, very sensitive to um, these, you know, these different cues, blue light, which is great for your brain in the morning, but we don't want to be exposed to in the evening. So, you know, keeping that schedule and trying to go to bed at roughly the same time, wake up roughly the same time is, is very important for everybody, but especially when we're talking about mental health. What are some of the benefits when you wake up of getting up and outside early in the morning and seeing some natural light? Huge, absolutely huge. And I recognize, and again, that's because you want the blue light in the morning. It not only helps set that circadian rhythm and keep it, you know, really regimented, but blue light boosts mood, it boosts cognition, it boosts positive emotion. So there's a lot to be said about getting out into the natural light if you can. And if not, recognizing that some of us don't live in such nice places, especially in the winter, I think it makes sense to in invest in a, a high quality blue light um, where yeah. that you can turn on for 20 or 30 minutes, at least in the morning while you're drinking your coffee. If you grew up in the Great Lakes like I did, you yeah. appreciate what happens when there's never any... Any yeah, I mean, really. I struggle with it. I, I I struggle with it a lot. It's it's very seasonal for me, and it is just awful in February and March. And you know, I mean, today it's beautiful. I feel much better. I feel much more aligned. I, I think that's pretty common. It's very common, in fact. Before we um we close, can you give your guidance on the the ideally the best sleep hygiene? Like, what are the habits if people can and should? incorporate into being able to get the most out of their sleep assuming that if they have insomnia they're getting the right medication if they're mm -hmm. um, if they have apnea they're getting the right therapy and if they're not even so what are the what are the things people can do to enhance the likelihood that they'll get better sleep okay and so i think the first is just valuing it Okay, just valuing it, understanding that it is your friend. It's a very powerful tool that you have at your disposal if you want to be a high performer and you want to be good at what, what you do. And there's, you know, 100 plus years of evidence suggesting that. So that's the first thing is really, and that's where I hope, I hope people listening to this, I'm getting the buy-in. But I think that's the first thing is to learn to value it. Learn to believe the experts when we tell you that this is something that's going to help your performance, not hinder it. And just try to tune out the cultural noise because it's all based on myth. The second thing is look very, and the second thing is, is try to the best of your ability to keep a regular sleep schedule as much as you can. I understand it's not possible all the time every day, but as much as you can, it's something you take care of. Just like you go to the gym to take care of your health. Ideally, you want to be able to protect your sleep routine. And that means not just trying to go to bed and wake up at roughly the same times, but especially for busy lawyers, it means have a relaxing wind down routine. Too many of us expect to hop into bed and to just pass out like we did when we were kids. That gets harder and harder the older you get, in part because of the aging process, but in large part just due to our busy, hectic, and highly stressful schedules. So I have a question so controlling this about winding mm -hmm. down. So sure. a lot of people think winding down means have a glass of wine. Yes, I'm. Oh, I'm getting there. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> I'm. Oh no, that's okay. I because you're you're cueing me right up because this is like this is a depressing fact for me because I don't know if I told you this before, but the second I got tenure, I started studying to be a sommelier. I'm so passionate about wine, 
So this is sort of a frustrating fact for me. <laughs> but while you may think, you know, that that's a good part of your wind down routine, it turns out it's not. Now, it may be that a small glass of wine is fine for some of us, but for others, especially women, as we get a little older and this is interacting with our hormones, not so much. Um, again, you know, you have to kind of play around with this and see what works for you. But what I can tell you is in general, alcohol, while very soporific, meaning for a lot of us, it'll help us wind right down, even fall asleep. It doesn't help us stay asleep. And in part, that's because it wreaks havoc on our sleep architecture. And I can tell you the reason for that. It's because it inhibits the, a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine that's responsible for rapid eye movement sleep, which as we discussed is a very intense type of sleep where the brain is wildly active. And so you fall asleep, but then, you know, you're inhibiting this, this, you know, chemical that your brain is sort of fighting to get back. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, you metabolize the alcohol, it's out of your bloodstream, but then REM sleep just comes on like gangbusters and it just washes the whole brain and in this arousal relating, you know, chemical, and you'll either wake up and not be able to go back to sleep. These are the 3 a.m. screamies or the sleep maintenance insomnia. This is the wake up in the middle of the night, can't get back to sleep thing. Alcohol is a very common culprit here. Or even if you can get back to sleep, your sleep architecture is just going to be trashed. So yeah, we need to revisit the glass of wine or just have it earlier on. It's about proximity to bedtime. And for everybody, that's a bit different. But ideally, like you don't want to have that as part of your, you know, your po your hour, you know, the hour before sleep post, you know, wind down routine. So the other right. question about winding down that I want to ask you is, um, as I as I looked with dismay at the propagation of influencers and mm -hmm. paid endorsers on Instagram that talk about how they have their CPD, CBD, or whatever the hell it is, hot chocolate, yeah. or, or that stuff <laughs> right. at night, and that that now they sleep perfectly. Of course they do. <laughs> there's um, there's a lot of false narratives around these supplements, isn't there? There are. Yes, there's a ton. And you know, but here's the thing. I don't like to mess with the placebo effect. It's actually one of the strongest effects we know of in psychology and neuroscience and medicine. So if they think that, by all means, let them. Because believing it is half the battle, especially when it Got comes it. to the stress of insomnia or the stress that's creating the insomnia to begin with. But substances are really something to look at. Now, I think with marijuana in general, as that gets legalized across the country, I'm hoping there'll be a lot of very detailed studies looking at, you know, the different strains and how that may or may not help sleep. The jury's still really out there um, because there just hasn't been enough research on it yet. But substances in general, so alcohol, you know, be very careful about proximity to bedtime and caffeine. You know, caffeine has a pretty long half-life of like 11 or 12 hours. So, you know, even if you were able in your 20s to drink coffee all throughout the day, you know, to work late into the night, as you get older, for a lot of people, that starts to have a different effect. And the effect that is often coffee sleep. can stay with you a really long time, can it? Yeah, yeah. And so then maybe you, you do, same thing, you either fall asleep well, but you don't stay asleep, or you can't fall asleep at the beginning of the night. So I'd say alcohol, caffeine, and stress. Now, stress is the big one, though. So if it's going to be tough, if you can't figure out a way to get your stress hormone levels down, it is going to be hard to sleep well. Those two things just go hand in hand, which is why I also talk a lot about, you know, the biopsychology of stress, the neuroscience of stress and stress hormones, how they impact the brain, how they link with our sleep, you know, sort of um, system. 
And we talk a lot about stress reduction techniques to get those cortisol levels down, get the other arousal related neurotransmitters to come down, ideally as a part of that wind down routine so that your brain is ready, you know, and willing to accept sleep, which kind of has to happen, right? I mean, you can't make it happen. That's what's so frustrating about it. So you've got to create the conditions. So that's one of the most important things as far as as sleep hygiene is creating those conditions for sleep. So I'm going to give you an opportunity before we leave to tell our listeners where they can find you. And I'll give them a hint that if you do find her, you can download some free sleep tips. That's true. That's actually true. Yeah. So um, I would love it if you'd visit my website. It's jessicadpain.com. And I'm also developing a digital course. This is my first foray into this, but it's going to be focused on increasing leadership effectiveness um, performance and brain function by tapping into the power of sleep and just sort of the brain more generally. So if you want to get early access when that launches, you can just sign up and just go to jessicadpain.com forward slash course. And I'd be happy to hear from you. So thank you for this. This has been, this has been a lot of fun. You are a great guest and you're talking about such a vital topic. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.